Father, thank you for today, for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Pray that you would uh, encourage us as uh, as we consider this topic and as we prepare ourselves for the uh, worship service. That you would uh, give us grace and uh, and mercy and uh, help us not only to hear but to heed your word and to apply it to our lives. Pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, Amen. Well, welcome to Theological Quibbing Class. Uh, this semester, we're talking about applied theology, really diving down into the what and the why and the how of discipleship. Uh, this morning, Jared was supposed to teach on missions. He had a family member who passed away. And, uh, and so I'm going to be teaching instead, uh, and I'm going to be preaching, so you have me all morning. Sorry about that. Um, but today, we're talking about health and fitness. And uh, so what, we, what does the Bible say about health and fitness? How important is this? Actually, we'll see. But first, let's take a second to consider how much we as a culture, just thinking about 21st century American culture where we are, and how much we as a culture think and talk about this topic already. You're already familiar with this, but you go into a grocery store, nearly every cover of every magazine has some sort of generally unrealistic standard for men and women and says that you have to attain this unless you have ripped abs and can bench press 300. You aren't a man or at least not a very desirable one. Or unless you weigh 100 pounds, you, you wear a size zero, you aren't beautiful. So we do what good capitalists do, right? We, we throw money at the problem, right? We, we join a gym, we get a gym membership. We spend billions of dollars a year on the health and fitness industry. Heck, even the, the so-called king, LeBron James, he spends $1 million a year just maintaining his body. Yet still, even though we throw all this money at it, we still aren't satisfied. Something like 80 to 90% of all women and about 50% of all men say that they're dissatisfied with their bodies, according to studies. So what else do we do? Well, we adapt our eating habits, right? Think about all the habits you've heard about over the past 30 years. You have Atkins, Whole30, South Beach Diet, Paleo, Vegan, the Daniel Fast, whatever it might be. That's not to mention the billions of dollars that Americans spend on cosmetics and plastic surgery and essential oils and on and on we could go. In other words, we are a culture that for about a century or so has been obsessed with weight and with beauty and with health. And if you remember back in uh, any study of physics that you might have done, according to Newton, for every reaction, there is going to be a reaction. And that certainly applies here to the topic of health and fitness. There's a reaction to these unrealistic, unbiblical, absurd standards that our culture imposes upon us. Or rather, there's often a cultural overreaction to that. We, we tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so over the past decade, you might have noticed that we've seen this swinging of the pendulum. We've seen the advent of myriad magazines that swing the pendulum from one unhealthy excess to another with pictures of plus-size models suggesting, quote, this is healthy and that any contrary view is fat-shaming or fat-phobia. In other words, we haven't just rebuked those who promote unrealistic standards of beauty. We've now completely jettisoned science and medicine and common sense. We've suggested 
that any sort of concerns about things like weight and obesity and fitness and heart health and so forth, they're rooted in white supremacy or the patriarchy or whatever it might be that we're fighting at the time. In other words, we live in a very messy world. Thankfully, Scripture is sufficient in this, as in all things, to help kind of clear the clutter. It might not seem like it at first. It's just kind of a superficial reading of Scripture. It doesn't seem like it says much about things like health and fitness. After all, the Bible doesn't seem to say all that much about eating healthy and getting swole. How do you know that the authors of Scripture didn't do CrossFit? Because they didn't mention CrossFit, right? There's no way that anyone who could ever do CrossFit could write an entire book of the Bible and not mention it, right? You can't have a conversation with someone and they don't mention it. So why don't we see more about health and fitness in Scripture? Well, I want you to think about the cultural distance that exists between us and the first century. If you're a first century Jew, you don't buy processed foods from a grocery store. You catch a fish yourself. Or you raise a crop, and everything that you eat is somewhat organic. There's no GMO. There's no Kroger or Tom Thumb. You don't add salt and sugar and sriracha and syrup to everything. right? Twinkies and Snickers and Doritos, they don't exist. Besides that, you don't drive. You don't have a Tesla or something. You generally walk everywhere. And you don't buy a bundle of wood if you want to make a fire. You have to go chop down a tree. You don't sit at a desk all day typing on a computer. You harvest or you hunt or you drag a net of fish or carry a bucket of water. In general, the culture is so different, there wasn't this pressing need for the prophets and the apostles to address a lot of the issues that we see in our culture. Laziness and gluttony were certainly issues. They've been issues in every single culture for all of time. But obesity was much less of an issue. By the way, not all gluttons are overweight, and not all those who are overweight are gluttonous or lazy. There are dozens of other factors that come into play, including genetics and injuries and so forth. In fact, we have an elder here who is, quote, allergic to exercise. Literally, anytime he sweats, he breaks into hives. I won't tell you who it is, but if you find out, you should make fun of him. But my point is we can't judge someone's heart by his or her appearance. We're far too complex beings for that. But for all of these sort of reasons, we simply don't see all that much about physical health and fitness in Scripture. But we do see some things. So let's talk about what the Bible actually says about health and fitness. But first I want to give a disclaimer. This is a a hard topic to do, especially on somewhat short notice. Uh, But it's really kind of multiple overlapping topics. Technically, when you're talking about health, that could also lead to conversations on things like healthcare and vaccines and a dozen other related ethical sort of topics. But today, we're just talking really about two things. When I say health and fitness today, what I mean basically is eating and exercising. Those are the two things that we're really talking about today. All right? So, I realize a conversation on vaccines would be beneficial. I realize that those kinds of things would be enlightening. That's for another time, though. Let's grab lunch if you want to chat about that. So what does the Bible say that is relevant, though, to kind of an applied theology of eating and to exercise? The first thing that the, body, uh, that the Bible says is that our bodies were created by God. This is the most obvious thing, but it's also the most important thing. Genesis 2-7. It 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Or Psalm 139, 13 through 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now this isn't only a text. We typically see this when we're talking about pro-life causes. Certainly is a text about that, but it's not only about that. It's more than that. It's a text which celebrates the wisdom and the power of God and implies that he has sovereign rights over us. As a potter makes a pot, so the Lord God has made us. Now I want to talk about a a theological pet peeve of mine. One of my pet peeves is when someone will say that they don't, let's say, drink caffeine because, quote, my body is a temple. Or they won't get a tattoo because, quote, my body is a temple. Or they, or, or they work out. The reason that they go and do CrossFit or the reason that they go and lift weights is because, quote, my body is a temple. Anytime I uh, hear someone say that, I imagine that as they're saying my body is a temple, they're like kissing their guns. It's kind of the image that I have in my mind. Why is that a pet peeve? Because that verse that says your body is a temple has absolutely nothing absolutely nothing to do with eating healthy or working out. I absolutely think that you should eat healthy and that you should work out. I just don't think that that passage teaches that. So it's an example of right truth but wrong text. Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 6.19. We were in this a few weeks back. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. This is typically what people quote. And if the content or the context of that verse was about eating and exercise, I would say this is a super relevant text. In fact, it's one of the most relevant texts. Unfortunately, that isn't the context. Look at the previous verse. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So 1 Corinthians 6 isn't about how we shouldn't drink alcohol or we shouldn't supersize our French fries. It's actually about how we shouldn't go to temple prostitutes, how we shouldn't commit adultery, how we shouldn't commit fornication. It isn't about eating and exercise at all. It's about explicit sin. Your body is holy, and so don't sin. That's the point of this text. So that text isn't a good text, but nonetheless, it is true that you're not your own. We're not our own because we were made by God. So the second point flows from this first which is that God intends that we steward our bodies appropriately. So I'm inferring this from the previous point. If we're not our own, if God made us, then we have a responsibility to steward what has been lent to us. I say lent because that's how we should think of our bodies. We don't own our own bodies. In fact, we aren't even second in line. If you remember when we preached through 1 Corinthians 7, we talked about this, that God ultimately owns our bodies, But according to 1 Corinthians 7, if you're married, your spouse also owns your bodies. So not only are you not first, you're not even second, you're third in line when it comes to owning your body. So if you're not the owner, but rather you're the steward of your body, that means you have responsibility to take care of it. In what other area of your life is that not the case? In what other area of your life can you borrow something and simply trash it? If I borrow someone's car, I'm probably not going to go mudding or try to drift in a parking lot. I'm probably driving with hands 10 and 2. 
Look at 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now the context here isn't primarily concerned with eating burgers and brats. It's primarily about eating food sacrificed to idols. But we saw when we walked through that text last year how that discussion, food sacrificed to idols, leads to a conversation, a bigger conversation on issues that are called adiaphora, things that are neither commanded nor prohibited in Scripture. And so that would apply to things that we choose to eat or not eat. At the end of the day, it might not be wise for you to eat pizza every day, but it's not actually sinful. Neither is eating meat or drinking milk or any of the other things that PETA might say is unethical today. By the way, another theological pet peeve of mine is when someone points to Israel's food laws or to the Daniel fast, and they want to make that somehow prescriptive. They said, Daniel didn't eat meat, so we shouldn't eat meat. That totally misses the point in the context. Daniel didn't eat eat meat not because he was a vegan. Daniel didn't eat meat because that particular meat was ritually unclean. It was meat that was probably sacrificed to pagan gods. Likewise, the fact that God forbids Israel to eat pigs and shellfish doesn't mean that you have to avoid bacon and shrimp. Otherwise, you'd have to joke yourselves to the entire Mosaic law. The reason that God forbade those things has almost nothing to do with health and everything to do with God creating a distinction between Israel and the surrounding nations. They are to eat different things. They are to worship on different days. They are to wear different things. They are to be different in almost all of these ways. The same way that God wouldn't allow Israel to wear clothing of mixed fibers not because hybrid fabrics are somehow unethical, uh, unethical, but simply to distinguish Israel as a people set apart from surrounding nations. Likewise, now the church is set apart. But we're not set apart by what we eat or what we don't we eat or what we wear or we don't wear. Rather, we're set apart by our love and obedience and faith and so forth. In fact, Scripture says something about those who want to prescribe these new food laws or even want to continue the old food laws, who want to forbid eating of certain foods. And what the Bible says about that isn't positive. Look at 1 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Notice, it is the teaching of demons to say that you can't eat bacon, or you can't eat steaks, or you can't drink milk, or you can't drink alcohol. That's called legalism. God hates legalism. That is sin. But the point that I'm making here is that because God created our bodies, and because God owns our bodies, we bear a responsibility to steward them in ways that would glorify him. Sometimes that means feasting. Sometimes it means fasting. Sometimes it means drinking. Sometimes it means abstaining. In other words, this demands wisdom. Next point. Some sins inherently involve the body. Now that's obvious. Some sins are primarily spiritual Internal pride, for example, or greed or envy. They're just kind of internal sort of sins. But other sins explicitly involve the body. I'll give you a few examples. Number one, drunkenness. 
We talked about drunkenness, or we've talked about alcohol quite a bit over the past few years at Parkway. Not because we're obsessed with alcohol, but because evangelical culture has so messed things up on this topic. Even though the Bible never condemns drinking alcohol in general, even though Jesus drank, even though Jesus commands that we drink in regards to communion, by the way, they didn't have Welch's in the first century. We have an entire paper on that, by the way. But even though the Bible celebrates the idea that alcohol is a gift of God, yet many Christians still believe that it's somehow unwise or sinful to ever drink alcohol which logically implies that Jesus was unwise or sinful. You can't get around that. If you think it's unwise or sinful to drink alcohol, then you are saying that Jesus is unwise or sinful because he did it and he instituted it. In reality, alcohol is a good gift, but like any gift, it can be abused. And the Bible calls that abuse a sin. We call it drunkenness, Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. By the way, that doesn't mean that you can get drunk with beer, all right, I won't get drunk with wine. Paul never said anything about bourbon. That's not his point. Now, interestingly enough, the Bible and the entirety of church history until the 19th century in America only, the entirety of church history held to the idea that, that drinking was perfectly good and acceptable if done in moderation. In fact, this is really interesting. The historical word used was temperance, which originally meant moderation. What's interesting is you see a redefinition of that word. You see how uh, the prohibition movement took that word, usurped that word, and turned it into a, a word that no longer means moderation, but it means complete and total abstinence. But drunkenness is one example of a physical sin, a, a sin with very physical manifestations. Another example of that is gluttony. What is gluttony? Literally, it refers to being wasteful. That's what the word literally means. By application, it was extended to mean to eat too much. Proverbs 23, 20 through 21. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. By the way, you see this connection oftentimes in Scripture between drunkenness and gluttony. Those are often seen together in Scripture. In fact, Jesus was called a drunkard and a glutton by his opponents. Those are often lumped together because both are really just the excessive abuse of a good gift. Drunkenness is the excessive abuse of the good gift of drinking alcohol. Gluttony is the excessive abuse of the good gift of eating. Both are sinful. But again, that doesn't mean that eating and drinking themselves are sinful, just that excessive abuse is. If you want to argue that you shouldn't drink at all, in order to avoid drunkenness, then you should logically also argue that you shouldn't eat at all in order to avoid gluttony, or you shouldn't sleep at all in order to avoid sloth. I could keep giving examples of other sins that explicitly involve our bodies, laziness, adultery, other forms of sexual morality, murder, but you get the point, which is that some of our conversations on eating and exercise overlap with these explicit biblical commands and prohibitions. The next point. Our sin affects our bodies. So in the, in the previous point, we talked about uh, how some sins are explicitly physical. But here I want to mention the fact that all sin actually has some sort of physical consequence. For instance, think about this. According to Romans, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's a physical consequence. 
Whether your sin is a physical sin like drunkenness or a spiritual sin like pride or greed or whatever it might be, all sin has a physical consequence. All right? That's a physical punishment for spiritual transgression. This is true because we are embodied souls. We're embodied spirits. Biblically, those are connected. Those are interconnected. Those are interrelated. What we do spiritually affects us physically and vice versa. <clears throat> Let me show you this from Scripture first and then from experience. Look at Proverbs 3, 1 through 8. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Notice this next line. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Notice there, faithfulness and obedience are related to health and refreshment. Now there are two errors that we need to avoid here. One is to take this in a health and wealth, prosperity gospel way and think that what this is saying, what this is implying or what this is actually saying is that if you're faithful, God promises that you will be healthy. You won't get cancer or whatever it might be. That error is obvious, or at least it should be obvious. I don't think anyone here is sympathetic to the prosperity gospel. But the other error is going to be more subtle, and that's where we might uh, be a little bit more endangered. That is that we so overreact to the prosperity gospel that we just completely ignore this connection that Scripture has made between faithfulness and wisdom and physical health. Well, like the entire book of Proverbs, this is not a promise. Rather, this is a reflection of how God has created the universe to function. It's a general truth. In general, what the, uh, what the author is saying is that if you walk in wisdom, your life will generally be prolonged and you will generally be more healthy. If you eat healthy, if you exercise and so forth, it will generally prolong your life. Again, not a promise, but a general principle. Look at Psalm 32, 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Notice, though, there is a physical response, a physical consequence to David's sin. He says his bones wasted away, his strength dried up. Both of these are poetic, metaphorical. They still make this uh, actual point, which is that David experienced physical repercussions for his sin. You see that same idea in Psalm 31, verse 10. For my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. You see that same sort of idea. Because of his sin, there is this physical response, this physical repercussion, this physical consequence. Or sticking to the story of David, you see that even in a couple of specific instances in his life. He commits adultery and there is a physical consequence. His child dies. That's a physical repercussion. Or when David sins by taking a census of Israel, there's this physical consequence. And remember what it was? What does God do to the nation? He sends a plague upon it. There's this devastating physical effect to David's 
spiritual sin. Or moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, consider John chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now Jesus will clarify that this particular case of blindness wasn't related to either this man's own sin or his parents, just a result of the fall. But nevertheless, the reason the disciples asked the question in the first place is instructive because they know that sometimes physical sickness is related to or rooted in spiritual sin. Sometimes the reason that you're sick could be because of your sin, because you have unconfessed, hidden, habitual sin. Again, that's not every sin or not every sickness is rooted in that. Sometimes it's just a result of living in a fallen world, but sometimes it is. Look at James 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And notice again the connection between healing and sin and confession and prayer. Again, physical sickness is sometimes, not always, but sometimes related to underlying spiritual sins. That's the biblical case. Now think about your own experience. I think everyone in this room probably has had times where you have seen your own spiritual sin have physical manifestations. For instance, I've mentioned before that uh, I had a huge fear of public speaking until around 2010. Prior to that, at my previous church, I was forced to do announcements. I was so anxious the night before, I would be throwing up all night long. And then I'd get up to do the announcements, or I'd get fired, so I had to do it. And I'd get up to speak, and my hands were sweaty, my mouth was dry, my heart was beating like 160 beats per minute. Why? Because my fear and my anxiety had physical manifestations. Why? Why does my fear and anxiety have physical manifestations? Because God has created us that way. He didn't create disembodied spirits, nor did he create just us to be spiritless animals. We are embodied spirits. There is an interconnectivity between those aspects of our being. When we sin, we experience physical consequences. That's something we need to fight to remember in our day. You see the ravishing effects. We've talked about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians. You see the ravishing effects of divorcing the body from the spirit in our culture in conversations today on, for, for instance, transgenderism. Right? The idea that my body, my biology doesn't define me. I'm really my spirit. I'm this ethereal, immaterial sort of thing. Or you see it in discussions on virtual church, where what matters isn't if I actually go to church and gather with God's people and physically take the elements. What matters is just this virtual thing, this ethereal thing, this immaterial sort of thing. So in some cultures, like we see in the Enlightenment, people swing the pendulum too far into saying that we're just bodies. It's just this, this rampant materialism. They deny the spiritual aspect of humanity. But other cultures... Swing the pendulum the other way and say we're just spirits. Our bodies don't matter. Biblically, though, both errors are to be avoided. We are made to have this synergy and this interconnectivity between our bodies and our spirits. God has made us as embodied 
spirits. And thus, what we experience in one aspect of our being affects the other. In fact, that's true not only of our sins. That's, that's true even in non-sinful things. Think about your feelings and your emotions and how they affect us physically. When you're sad, you have a physical manifestation of that in crying. When you're happy, you have a physical manifestation of that in laughing. Those are physical manifestations of your immaterial feelings and emotions. Our affections and our desires affect our bodies. So what we feel in a spiritual sense affects what we feel in a physical sense. But the inverse is also true. If our sin affects our bodies, then we have to hold that our bodies can also affect our sin. That's the fifth point. Our bodies affect our response to temptation and sin. One of the best examples of this, I think, from all of Scripture is in the account of Jesus and his disciples in Gethsemane. Jesus goes away to pray, and when he comes back, what are the disciples doing? They're sleeping, right? What should they have been doing? Praying and watching. They're too tired. So Jesus says in Matthew 26, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think if we're honest, I think we should be able to relate to the disciples. Right? When you're hungry, you become hangry. When you're tired, you become more irritable. You become more susceptible to temptations like lust. Does that fatigue excuse your sin? Of course not. But it contributes to it. It gives a foothold to the enemy. As God says to Cain in Genesis, sin is crouching at the door. So when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're sick, when you have one of these other physical sort of circumstances, it's much easier for you to open the door and let sin in. If this is true, I think biblically it certainly is, if this is true, not only biblically but also experientially, then you see how things like getting enough sleep and eating somewhat healthy and getting some exercise, that isn't just about stewarding our bodies. It's also a form of spiritual warfare. It's about knowing the enemy's designs, knowing his strategies and taking proactive steps to prevent succumbing to the attack. In general, if you won't get up and go for a walk or go for a run when you don't feel like it, then you probably also don't have the willpower to resist the urge to look at something you shouldn't on your computer, or you won't serve your spouse and kids when you don't feel like it. In other words, it's about self-control. Being able to exercise self-control in regards to physical things is, in a sense, practice for exercising spiritual control in spiritual things. Training yourself in one area oftentimes helps in regards to the other. Again, the reason is because we aren't just bodies or spirits. We're embodied spirits. As our bodies can till the soil for sin, so our bodies can be actually used to fight sin. Romans 6, 12-13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Let me give you a personal example of this. Ever since high school, some of you know I've, I've struggled with what the ancients would call 
despondency or melancholy or what we would today call depression. And I found what makes depression a whole lot worse is to do the very thing that I want to do when I'm depressed, which is to just stay in bed or to do nothing at all or to think about how depressed I am. You know what actually does help my depression? Getting up, serving others, being active, exercising. And I'm not alone in this, uh, in this struggle. Other guys throughout history, in fact, many of my theological heroes have all struggled with melancholy. John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon. Here's one of Spurgeon's prescriptions for fighting that despondency. He who forgets the humming of the bees among the heather, the cooing of the wood pigeons in the forest, the song of birds in the woods, the rippling of rills among the rushes, and the sighing of the wind among the pines, needs not wonder if his heart forgets to sing and his soul grows heavy. A day's breathing of fresh air upon the hills or a few hours rambled in the beech woods, umbrageous calm, I don't know what umbrageous means, would sweep the cobwebs out of the brain of scores of our toiling, toiling ministers who are now but half alive. A mouthful of sea air or a stiff walk in the wind's face would not give grace to the soul, but it would yield oxygen to the body, which is next best. In other words, what he's saying is that taking a, a walk is a whole lot cheaper and sometimes even more effective than Prozac or counseling or something like that. That's the fifth point. Our bodies affect our response to temptation and sin. If you haven't trained yourself to be able to resist certain urges physically, that's probably going to translate into an inability or an unwillingness to resist certain urges spiritually. Sixth thing, the Bible suggests there is at least some value in being healthy. This isn't a huge biblical point. They won't see this all over the place in Scripture. But again, we shouldn't expect to see it all over the place for a couple of reasons. Number one, people were generally more active. Food was more scarce, generally more healthy than many of the options we have today. And then number two, this was just assumed. A lot of this is just common sense, right? We all seek our own happiness. We all know that we should generally try to get better if we're sick. We all know that it's unhelpful to be so out of shape that you can't play with your kids or to be so tired that you can't keep a job or whatever it might be. So you really shouldn't expect the Bible to say all that much about health and fitness in particular, but it does say some things. Let me mention two passages, 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. First, notice the command to train yourself for godliness. That's basically what this semester is about. When it comes to training for anything, some things are more important than others, right? If you're forced to give up either reading Scripture or praying or jogging, you should absolutely give up jogging. It's so less important than those other things. But the point is, you're not forced to give one of them up. The fact that jogging is less important or walking is less important or eating healthy is less important doesn't mean that it's actually unimportant. Think about football for a second, all right? If you're a quarterback, what's the most important thing in your weekly prep? It's probably most important that you work on timing with your receivers, you work on reading defenses and so forth. How much time should you as a quarterback spend on talking about what to do with the ball in the final 10 seconds of a playoff game 
After you run it up the middle, probably not a whole lot of time, but more than Dak Prescott spent on it. So when it comes to training and godliness, not all topics are equally valuable. That's not, we don't believe that about Scripture. We don't believe that every single passage of Scripture is equally instrumental for us. That's why we'll probably never preach through the book of Leviticus. It's inspired. It's helpful. It's authoritative. It's inerrant. All those kinds of things. But I have a limited amount of time with you, 20 years, 30 years, or whatever it might be as your pastor. And so I, want, I think there are more instructive, more helpful books to walk through. So not all topics are equally valuable, but neither are any superfluous. That's what it means when the Bible talks about teaching the full counsel of God. God certainly says less about physical health than prayer, but he does say some things, and so those things that he does say can't be neglected. So we're to train ourselves for godliness. Unless we think that it's only spiritual, look at the next line, for while bodily training is of some value. Now it's obvious Paul's main point isn't that bodily training is valuable. His point is that training in godliness is more valuable. Nevertheless, don't miss the fact that he does say that bodily training is valuable. It's less valuable than some things, but it's still valuable. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. We were in this a few months back. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Again, Paul's main point isn't about physically training as a boxer or a runner. His main point is that in the same way that a boxer or a runner trains physically, so we should train spiritually, but still there is an assumption that there is some good in those activities. Notice even the way, that Paul, uh, the way that Paul talks about how he pursues faithfulness. He says he, quote, disciplines his body, literally beats his body, pummels his body. That probably doesn't mean that Paul was jacked with ripped abs, but I would imagine that it means that he sometimes fasted so that he wasn't controlled by his appetite. I think that it means that he would sometimes get up early so that he wasn't ruled by his sleep, that he was willing to endure physical persecution in order to increase his endurance. So my encouragement to you is to discipline your body. Again, not that you might be able to bench press 250 or run a six-minute mile or fit into your old high school prom dress, but rather so that you can resist sin and so that you can be faithful in other areas that require some degree of self-control, and even some degree of physical stamina. Does the Bible ever explicitly command you to eat healthy and to exercise? No. But I think it's clear from a comprehensive look at what Scripture does say that doing so is wise. One of the things that we have to learn how to do as Christians is not just ask the question whether or not something is sinful. That's the kind of question that a legalist asks. Even in asking the question, even if you say no, you're still playing into their games. You're still acting as if legalism is the law. One of the things that we have to do as Christians is not just ask, is something sinful or not? We have to go beyond that and also ask, is it wise? And I think it's absolutely clear that pursuing some degree of health in regards to eating and exercising is wise. 
So that's the sixth thing the Bible says about our bodies and sin that are relevant to a discussion on health and fitness, on eating and exercise. Now let's get down to some practicals. I give a few helpful hints. Number one, to avoid the extremes. In all things, we have a tendency as humans to swing the pendulum. I have a buddy. You actually know him, but I won't say who he is. I have a buddy who is like that with working out. He can't do moderation. He's either not working out at all, so there'll be months on end where he's not working out at all, or for like a few weeks, he's working out seven days a week and he's throwing up in his garage. All right? That same tendency, though, to err toward the extreme could come up in eating. Right? Maybe you count every calorie that you eat. Maybe you don't even know what a calorie is. Maybe you never have dessert. Maybe you never not have dessert. Or what about sleep? I've known a couple of people who only need three to four hours of sleep per night. That's not most of us. Likewise, I've known people who for various reasons need like 10 to 12 hours of sleep. But again, that's not normal. Maybe you never sleep. Maybe you sleep all day. In general, the goal should be moderation, to be uh, not ruled either by exercise or the lack thereof, or what we don't eat or what we do eat, or how often we nap or don't nap. Sometimes we should fast, sometimes we should feast, sometimes we should sleep in, sometimes we should get up early. It's kind of like the proverb uh, or uh, in Ecclesiastes where it says, for every day there's a season. Sometimes we should be active, sometimes we should skip a workout, but in general we should pursue moderation. And this is, again, where legalists scream inside because we want rules. And rules are helpful when it comes to sin. Don't look at porn. That's a rule. Don't use inappropriate speech. That's a rule. Don't cheat on your spouse. Do sleep with your spouse. Those are all rules. But when it comes to eating and drinking and sleeping and exercise, we've actually moved out of the, the realm of rules. We've moved more into a realm of wisdom. How much exercise is enough? How much is too much? How much food is enough? How much is too much? There is no rule, really, for everyone is different. Our bodies are different. Our calendars are different. Our genetics are different. Our jobs are different. And those differences affect how we might answer those questions. All of us in this room might have a different balance. Moderation for each of us might look differently. Bottom line, if you want a rule, I think it should be this, that you should be wise in how you think about and actually practice eating and exercising. That's the rule. Go and do. Second, remember the goal. The goal isn't to weigh a certain amount or to deadlift a certain amount. The goal isn't to look like someone you saw on Cosmo or Men's Health. The goal is faithfulness. A lot of times we set rules that are somewhat arbitrary, like I want to weigh such and such. I want to go to the gym six times a week. And those rules in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad. Go for it. But biblically speaking, that's not what God's asking of you. God is only asking for you to be faithful. God is not asking that you bench press a certain amount or that you weigh a certain amount. But rather, God is asking that you steward everything you've been given for his glory. That means that you take care of your body just like you would take care of everything else. Bear in mind, humans are unique among all other animal species in how diverse our body types are. I think about the fact that we have bodybuilders all the way to ballerinas. We have Japanese sumo wrestlers all the way to Kenyan distance runners. And that's really unique in the animal kingdom, right? That interspecies sort of diversity. Occasionally you'll see a picture on the internet 
of a super jacked kangaroo, like muscles bulging. It'll catch you off guard. In fact, you send it to all your friends. Why? Because that level of variety is exceedingly rare in other species. But we see it all the time in humanity. We were made to be similar in various ways, but also really different in others. Therefore, your goal shouldn't be that you should look like someone else. Your goal should be to be faithful. If it helps you to create other goals in order to accomplish that primary overarching goal of being faithful, that's fine. For instance, if you want to say, I have a goal to bench press 200, I have a goal to run a seven-minute mile, not because you ultimately care about your bench press or your mile time, but rather because those goals just help to keep you faithful, that's totally fine. Just be careful that the secondary point, the secondary goal, doesn't become primary. And that leads us to the, the next point, which is that we need to beware of idolatry. We've talked before about how, misunderstand, how much misunderstanding there is in evangelicalism regarding the topic of idolatry. We even have a blog on it called The Idol of Idolatry. Here's what evangelical culture says. If you love something a whole lot, that's an idol. You love your kid a whole lot, you've got a child idol. You love food, that's an idol. You love working out, that's idolatrous. That sort of thinking is exhausting. It's also terribly unbiblical. Loving your kid isn't idolatry. That's simply being a normal parent. An idol isn't something that you love. It's something that you love in the place of God. It's something that's, that by loving it causes you to neglect your love for an obedience to God. But that said, as, uh, as Calvin said, our hearts are perpetual forges of idols. Idolatry is the natural state of the flesh. Yes, loving your kid might not be an idol, but you have tons of idols. Coming to Christ doesn't remove all of those idols. It gives you the power to fight them. But it doesn't remove them all. So we always need to be aware of that tendency of our hearts. Yes, working out in and of itself may not be idolatrous, but it could become idolatrous. As you begin to covet a particular body type, or as you begin to work out so much that you neglect other biblical responsibilities, as you find your life revolving around cultivating your body at the expense of your soul, how many of us have known someone in the past who maybe was quite a bit overweight, who had perhaps struggled with gluttony? Again, not everyone who is overweight is gluttonous. But this person was in this scenario. So they started working out. They started eating healthy. That's great. But pretty soon they can't hang out because they have to go to the gym. They can't go to that restaurant because it isn't healthy enough. They can't eat this certain food because they're counting every calorie. What's happened? They've simply traded one idol for another. They aren't actually free. They're as enslaved as ever. They've simply traded one master for another. So beware of that often slow creep of idolatry. How do you know if your desire is becoming idolatrous? Was it beginning to affect your identity? Is it beginning to affect how you see yourself fundamentally? Can you practice moderation? For example, could you cheat one day by splurging for one meal? Could you skip a leg day at the gym, or could you skip a day at the gym? Or would that cause too much guilt and shame? If so, that might be a, a little sign that a root of idolatry is beginning to spring forth. It's totally okay to be really passionate and serious about eating healthy and working out. In fact, I think you should, biblically, be pretty serious about eating healthy and working out, or at least doing something active. But as with anything, what is good can be corrupted, so we always need to be on guard. 
Fourth, we need to consider the role of community. By the way, this is almost completely irrelevant, but it occurred to me as I was preparing for this that I've, I have had the privilege of working out around some really famous people in my life. In college one time, I went to, to Texas A&M, and I was on a, thank you uh, for the whoop, I was on a bench press, and uh, in walked President George H.W. Bush, and he sat down on the bench press right next to me, along with his Secret Service agents, which is, that's the greatest job, because then you have built-in spotters, right? You have people who can just help you out. I didn't talk to him. My dad's actually uh, met him one time, but, uh, um, but yeah, he, he worked out right next to me. Or I, I, I was one time in a gym all alone in my in-law's little neighborhood gym, and in walks Tony Romo. And so it's just me and Tony Romo in a gym. I didn't talk to him either. A couple of years ago, I was running on a treadmill at a hotel gym, and in walked Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA. Now, I didn't actually work out with any of those guys, but I have worked out with such illustrious gentlemen as Rahul Gaba, Carl Brower, Jared Lawson. Pretty impressive, right? So right now, Gaba, he's one of our deacons, in case you don't know him, but uh, he and I work out together. We try to do it twice a week. And to be honest, that's not as efficient as me working out alone. All right, we'll start talking about something. We take too long between sets or whatever, but I do it because it's actually worth it. We talk about life, we talk about family, we talk about church, we talk about theology. In other words, it's a form of discipleship. We're doing life together. Well, the same is true of, uh, of eating. The benefits of community extend there in January. My family and DJ's family wanted to do a month of healthy eating. So DJ and Courtney and Casey all did Whole30. I did a modified half 30 or something. But that accountability was really helpful in encouraging us to persevere. Everything in our culture pushes us to be more insulated, to, more, to be more isolated. We have fences between our houses. Everyone drives their own car. We have drive through so we don't have to interact with people. Even Whole Foods delivers our groceries. That isolation isn't good for us. We talked about, we did an entire theological equipping on the role of community. We need community. And it just so happens that the benefits of community extend to just about every aspect of our lives. The way that we think about service, the way that we think about reading scripture and praying, all of these things, there are communal aspects. So my encouragement to you is to consider how you might be faithful in this context of eating and exercise by involving those around you. And then lastly, be creative. Here, I just want to commend you to think outside the box on how to incorporate these things into your life. Maybe you're thinking about this and you're like, yes, I want to do this. Let me give you a couple of examples. By the way, we won't have time for questions. Sorry, I was late getting up on stage. But let me give you some examples of this. Not that I'm great at being creative in eating and exercising, but these are just a few things that I, I do. Number one, I generally choose restaurants where eating healthy is easier. Because I know myself. If I go to Whataburger, I, I technically, theoretically, could get, a, could get a salad. I guess, does Whataburger have salads? I don't know. Okay, let's imagine they do. I could get one. I don't even know that because I'm never going to get one there. I'm going to get a burger. I'm going to get fries. Or if I go to Hutchins, I could get turkey or I could get chicken and green beans, but I'm getting brisket and fried okra. 
That doesn't mean that I never go to Hutchins or I never go to Whataburger, but it does mean I, I accidentally say Whataburger. I know it's not actually Whataburger. It's what a burger, but I'm from South Texas, so I mispronounce words all the time. But it does mean that me going to those places is more the exception rather than the norm. So generally, when it comes to lunch, I go to one place. What is it? Starwood, right? If you ever had lunch with me, you had it at Starwood. Part of the reason for that is because I don't want to think about it. So I just throw out the same place every time. Part of the reason also is because I know that I can eat someone healthy there. And when I go to the same place five days a week, I need to think outside the box in regards to what I choose to eat. I can't always eat unhealthy. I'm not looking for the best in where I go to eat. I'm looking for what is wise and that gives me some healthy options. So that's one example of what I mean by trying to be creative. You might not find it creative, but that's okay. Another example of being creative is what I already mentioned about the role of community. I don't merely mean your friends, but I mean your family as well. So we try to do a family walk as often as possible. We try to do one, at least when it's not icy outside. Not only does it get us outside and get us moving, it also provides a chance for Casey and I to chat. The kids are running around. It gives a good teachable example or, or teachable moments for t- talking about nature and so forth. So we're multitasking, which is the third example of getting creative. This is especially relevant when it comes to working out. I'd, I'd actually recommend less multitasking when it comes to eating. But while working out, that's a prime time to get things done. If you ever call me on a phone and our conversation lasts more than 30 seconds, it is almost certain that I'll put on my AirPods and I'll go walking down the street. Every single time I take a work call, I will put on my AirPods and I'll start walking down the street. I'll head north past the, uh, the school to a little pond. It's full of turtles, so I call it the turtle hole. All right, and walking gives me an opportunity to do two things at once. Also because I'm kind of kinetic, if you don't notice when I'm teaching. Walking and working out also allows me to get a lot more reading done than I would otherwise. I'm, re- I'm actually a really slow reader, so I have to utilize walks and jogs to catch up on reading. Right now I'm listening to audiobooks of some of C.S. Lewis classics. So literally just in the time that I'm walking and working out, things that I would do anyway, I've reread or at least listened to all of Mere Christianity, The Screwtape Letters, and The Great Divorce. That's a way that I can multitask. So be creative with working out. If you think you're too busy... Maybe that's because you haven't really considered how to combine some of those tasks. There's a lot more that I could say here in terms of helpful hints to start small, to have a plan, and so forth. But for the sake of time, I want to end by turning this back to the spiritual perspective of eating and exercising and the responsibility that we have to be good stewards of God's gift. So I'll close with the parable of the talents. Think about the story of the parable of the talents. This master comes and he gives some servants ten talents and some five and and so forth. And at the end, he says to those who actually stewarded those talents in a way that glorified him in essence, he says, well done, good and faithful servants. And he said, to whom much is given, much is expected. It's a good gift that God has given you in your body. And you are to steward it to steward all of God's gifts, including your body, in such a way as to hope to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about health and fitness. And though it's not 
by far the most important of spiritual disciplines, it's also not irrelevant. It's not superfluous. Your word says something about it, and so we want to hear what your word says about it. So I pray that you would protect us from extremes. I pray that you would protect us from the extreme of being ruled by desire to have a certain body type or ruled by desire to be a certain strength or run a certain mile time or whatever it might be, but that you would also protect us from swinging the pendulum the other way and just not caring. Apathy is not a virtue, it's a vice. And so I pray that you'd protect us from being indifferent. I pray that you'd help us to have moderation. You'd help us to be good stewards of the gifts that you've given us, including our bodies. And ultimately, we pray these things with hope and expectation that you will one day raise our bodies to be new and glorious and immortal and imperishable, even as we talk about in the sermon later today. We pray these things with hope and expectation in Christ's name. Amen.